Hello, and welcome to the Collider.com podcast. I'm Collider.com senior editor Matt Goldberg, and with me is deputy editor Adam Chitwood. Howdy, folks. Today, we'll be doing our 2020 preview. Uh, it'll be a little different from past years. In past years, we sort of just went weekend by weekend. This year, we're going to look more at the macro trends and talk about a, a handful of specific films. And then we'll finish up by talking about our favorite films of 2019. But before we get to all that, uh, we wanted to address uh, an elephant in the room, which is that uh, some of our colleagues uh, over at Collider Video uh, were let go at the end of uh, last year, beginning of this year. And uh, we just wanted to stress uh, how much we enjoyed working with them, um, how valuable they are, um, and we're sad to see them go. go. This, this business is brutal. But th the good news is that all of these people are incredibly talented, incredibly hardworking, um, and I have, I have very little doubt that they will uh, be right back on another show doing great work that they've always tuned in. Um, and I just, you know, I understand for those fans that it's hard to sort of see those shows end and, and to see those changes. And, and we sympathize with that, but uh, we particularly sympathize with our coworkers uh, who were sad to see go. Yeah, it was uh, not an ideal way for us to start off the new year. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, everything Matt just said, I, I echo and, um, wish nothing but the best for them and and uh have no doubt that they're going to land on their feet they're they're very talented people and we had a lot of fun working with them over the years so yeah i mean we we do this show once a week and it's exhausting so i can't imagine doing it five times a week and being like oh, yeah. what are we talking about today I don't, I don't know. <laughs> three times a day yeah How long yeah good lord so yeah respect um so yeah uh, all right so let's moving on to our 2020 uh, preview. The, the big thing to note about 2020 is it's a year after years of feeling like event film, event film, event film, like sort of these tent poles that felt not just like tent poles for a studio, but for the entire year's box office. Now we're coming back down a bit. Like this is a year without a Marvel event film. Like, yes, there will still be Black Widow and there will still be Eternals, uh, and that's all well and good, and I'm excited for those movies. But there's no end game. There's no Infinity War. There's no like this is the culmination of a lot of things. This is just Marvel business as usual. There's also no Star Wars film this year for the first time since 2015. Uh, that's that's a big change. So you've taken those out, and then that again, that's not to say that there aren't big movies this year that are that are you know worth being excited. You know, again, you could kind of look at a year past, especially from Disney's perspective and been like, well, they have a Lion King remake and that's going to, you know, make a make a, a ridiculous amount of money. And it did make a ridiculous amount of money. Um, but I would say that this year it feels like for the first time in a while and I'm particular I'm, I'm kind of grateful for it. It's the it's where viewers will be tested to be like, if you want to come out to the movies, you're going to have to take a little bit of a risk on something, or you're going to have to be part of a word of mouth hit because it's not that there are necessarily fewer franchises, but the franchises are not demanding your attention in the way they have in years past. And they're also like unique franchise entries. Like, um, you know, the King's man is a prequel. It has no characters from the first two Kingsman movies. So it's essentially a brand new film um, set in the same universe, obviously. Uh, but it's a little bit of a different twist on it. And even Black Widow, it's not continuing the story. And I think fans of these franchises are so used to 
following along as if these are, um, you know, episodes in a long running TV series. And I think Black Widow is going to be really interesting because, you know, she died <laughs> at the end of Avengers Endgame. So uh, this is telling a part of her story that we didn't know before, but it's not exactly furthering the story of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. As far as we know, I'm sure they're going to be little droplets in there that connect to things that are happening in the future. Um, but it's it's a different way of going about it. And even um, something like Bill and Ted Face the Music, uh, you know, it's a long-awaited sequel, but it's not like Zoolander 2 or Anchorman 2. Um, it's bringing their daughters into the fold and telling kind of a new and different kind of story that way. Well, and let's talk about that. Let's talk a little bit about legacy sequels in 2020 yeah. because that seems to be kind of the next wave, which is – how do we continue a franchise, but the franchise hasn't been around for a while? And I think a film like Bill and Ted or Top Gun Maverick at least have the distinction of, well, the original stars are still the stars. Like Top Gun Maverick, Tom Cruise is the lead character in that film. Bill and Ted are the title characters, and yes, their daughters are coming along, but they are still the lead characters. But then you also have something like Ghostbusters Afterlife, which is very clearly a legacy sequel of how do we hand this franchise off to the next generation where it is tied to the original films, but the main characters are young are, you know, a teenager and a preteen basically. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and it's not new. I mean, the force awakens is essentially a legacy sequel. Um, although as we saw with rise of Skywalker, it really, that franchise just turned into straight up sequel. Um, but I do think that can sometimes offer a positive path forward for a franchise that can then kick off new things. I don't know if that's the plan with Top Gun Maverick or Bill and Ted, um, or even, well, probably Ghostbusters Afterlife. And that's a weird one too, because it's, you know, picking up right after Ghostbusters, picking up after Ghostbusters 2, and it's very tied to the legacy of the first two movies, um, albeit with a brand new cast. Yeah. I think that studios are going to be, when it comes to these sort of, you know, sequels coming decades later, I think studios are in for a rude awakening. Yeah. Um, because, and I, you can also see this with coming to America to, you know, coming to America. Oh yeah. Um, because, and it's not any disrespect to the talent involved or the fact that, you know, that these films were beloved, but I think these studios are assuming that, oh, well, this older generation loved these films, so they'll see it. And clearly they've shared it with their kids. And what are kids known for if not loving the same thing their parents do? And so that will bring the kids along and we've got a hit. And I'm like, I don't think it works that way. I really don't. I think it's, it's a nice sentiment and sometimes it happens, but really the film itself has to have the goods to make that younger generation come out. I think it's, well, it's nice for guys like you and me to be like, ooh, a new coming to America, you know, or Bill and Ted. Like, I'm so excited for Bill and Ted. Yeah. But this assumption that, like, you know, people who were not born <laughs> when these, like, who weren't, like, when these films turned 20 years old, these people still weren't alive. Uh, you know, this notion that they'll be like, well, I'll sign me up for the next entry um, is is a bit optimistic, uh, especially in the wake of something like Terminator Dark Fate, where they're like, oh, it's a legacy sequel. It's, you know, you, if you like Terminator, look, Linda Hamilton's back. And people are like, who are Lin who's Linda Hamilton? And we're like, damn kids in your music. <laughs> you know, like, it's, show some respect. Yeah. Which didn't we learn enough from Terminator Genesis? Apparently not. <laughs> <laughs> 
But I mean, there are exceptions. I mean, the new Halloween movie was a legacy sequel, and it was, uh, a, it was a, a pretty hit. big success. Yeah, um, and they've got two sequels on the way. The first of which comes out this year, and the second one comes out um, in October of twenty. Although I will say, with in the case of Halloween, first off, it was timed right. They realized, oh, hey, let's release a horror film in October which is more than I can say for Dr. Sleep, which I guess wasn't that much of a horror film, but still. <laughs> yeah. But again, if you want to go to like a legacy sequel that failed, they're like, oh, people like The Shining. Why wouldn't they come to Dr. Sleep? And they didn't. They didn't come out no. to Dr. Sleep. Um, but, you know, if you, if you look at Halloween, at least Halloween is like, yes, it has a legacy sequel aspect, but the sort of Halloween kind of flipped it on its head by saying like, you can ignore all the sequels and saying like, you would just ignore all the sequels just worry about the first movie, and it's always simple to understand a Halloween film. There's a, it, there's no like, oh man, I don't know if I can keep up. Like, it's Michael Myers, and he's going to kill some people. It's yeah. so easy to sell a Halloween film. Um, so to me, that was. I'm glad it was a hit. I think it's an easier sell to be like, come see a new Halloween film than it is to say like, why should you care about Bill and Ted in 2020? If, yes. you, if you weren't, if you haven't seen Excellent Adventure and Bogus Journey, like if I was Orion right now, the studio behind Bill and Ted Face the Music, I would be doing everything in my power to put Excellent Adventure and Bogus Journey on every streaming service possible. Yes, for sure. And those movies hold up. I watched them oh, again recently. They, yeah, they're terrific. It's not a nostalgia play. Like those movies are legitimately great. Uh, the, you know, aside from when they use uh, a gay slur. That, yes. that, that holds up terribly. But other yeah. than that, it's they're good movies. For sure. I think – I mean I think in many ways 2019 was a year about endings. We had Avengers Endgame, which ended that franchise. Rise of Skywalker obviously ended um, uh, that run of Star Wars movies. And you know we won't get a new Star Wars movie for three years now. Uh, I think it's three years, two or three years. Um, Game of Thrones ended. Uh Toy Story 4 ostensibly ended that franchise, but who the hell knows? Because Pixar keeps finding ways to bring those characters back. Uh, and it's fine. They're fine. Those movies are fine. Um, it seems like the theme of 2020, just broadly speaking, in terms of franchises, is kind of like, what's next? Where do we go from here? And few of these films are doing like hard reboots. Most of them, it seems like, are kind of easing people into it. So you take something like Birds of Prey and One of One 1984, for instance. Uh, obviously, Warner Brothers had some issues with their DC slate before, trying to build their interconnected series of movies, um, culminating in the disaster of uh, Justice League, um, which didn't make very much money at the box office, was critically reviled, and neither of the two directors who worked on it liked the movie. So no one was happy with that movie. And they're trying to write the ship. They're trying to kind of forge a new way forward. And Birds of Prey and Wonder Woman 1984 will be the first two films that have been created kind of in the wake of uh, of that. Unless I'm missing something. I'm not missing something, am I? Well, I mean, well, they're Aquaman the first to go. Shazam. Shazam. That's it. Right. That's well, it. the thing about Aquaman and Shazam is that they are sort of – they were still – those were already in development when before Justice League had hit. Yeah. And I feel like like – Wonder Woman 1984 and Birds of Prey are the first two that are firmly away from Justice League. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
And so, like, that's their chance to kind of tell audiences, like, hey, this is what we're doing now, or this is kind of um, a window into the future of what these movies can be. Uh, and it feels like they're, uh, you know, judging by Shazam and Aquaman, their they're kind of modus operandi now is, is kind of the Fox Marvel thing, which is, like, just make each individual movie as good as it can be, and don't worry so much about interconnectivity. Um, and we'll see if that turns out to be the case, but... Again, this is a reintroduction to audiences to um, those franchises, and it very much feels like that first trailer for Birds of Prey is very much like fuck Suicide Squad because it's it's all her talking about the Joker and how she's done with the Joker, and that's all behind her and in her past. There's, there's basically a marketing campaign to being like Jared Leto isn't in this shit. <laughs> yeah, essentially, yeah, that's kind of exactly what they're doing. Um, and then you have uh, even Marvel's movies, Black Widow and the Eternals. I mean, the Avengers Endgame was such a massive culmination. And the Marvel Cinematic Universe is inarguably the most successful, most consistently successful franchise running right now. Um, and Avengers Endgame was the first time they had ever done like a true ending. Each of the previous Avengers movies had set up things that were coming down the pike. Um, and so, you know, I think I'm curious to see it feels like Endgame was the perfect time for some people to be like, all right, I had my fun. I'm getting off this ride now. Um, like if you are good in terms of Marvel movies, you don't necessarily have to keep going. Although uh, the success of um, Far From Home, which I think made over a billion yeah. worldwide, says people are like, yeah, these are still fine. I'm still okay yeah. with – like I, at this point, it's sort of like for a Marvel film, you know, the question is, is how – will it will it hit a billion? Is, yeah. And I think – Black Widow and Eternals, that's not for sure. That's not certain because Black Widow is like, is this character who you know will die? <laughs> is her story enough to to lure you back in? Yeah. Um, and then uh, Eternals seems to be a very big swing, like a, like a Guardians-level swing, mm-hmm. which I'm excited for. I, lo- I think Chloe Zhao is a great director. I love the cast that they put together for Eternals, but it does feel like a much bigger swing than like – another Spider-Man film. Yeah. And even a bigger swing than like Dr. Strange, mm-hmm. um, yeah. I would say. I'm well, Dr. Strange curious. is basically like Iron Man, but magic. It's so much Iron Man. <laughs> it's so similar. Um, but yeah, I think, I don't know. I, I think the, this year is going to give audiences a kind of a taste of like, where do we go from here? Um, even Venom 2 and Morbius. I mean, I guess Sony is going to get their own non-Spider-Man Marvel Universe off the ground with those two movies, so it'll be interesting to see um, how that goes and if they're going to finally pull Spider-Man into those movies, which, God help us, I'm sure Kevin Feige is working as hard as possible to not let that happen. Um, But, I mean, to me, honestly, you can look at the slate and you can say there's not a lot of big movies. Even Disney doesn't have much. I mean, Mulan is their only live-action remake, Artemis Fowl is coming out, but that movie was pushed back. Like, that movie was supposed to come out, like, way early last year, right? Last August. Yeah, okay, last August. Um, and that got pushed back. I mean, Pixar has two original movies coming out. Which is exciting. And, and that's kind of the thing for me this year is is kind of original movies. Um, you know, Soul and Onward both look terrific. I've heard they're both outstanding. Um but then you have – I mean Edgar Wright has a brand new movie called Last Night in Soho. It's a psychological thriller, uh, which he's never done before. He's delving into a different genre. He's one of the most exciting filmmakers working today. Obviously, Christopher Nolan has a new film, uh, and he is just kind of like box office catnip but also makes movies. I mean I, mean, I think some people 
it's okay to not like every Chris Nolan movie, but I think regardless of your feelings on him as a whole, his movies are still exciting and interesting to go to. Well, he's the only, yeah, well, not only that, but he's the only filmmaker that a studio will give so much latitude towards to make something that's not a franchise. Yeah. Like, like just if, if, you know, maybe Tenet is the start of a franchise, but basically an original feature, they will give him a ridiculous amount of money to shoot something in IMAX. That is an original feature because he's proved he can do it with inception. Yeah. Um, and even something like no time to die. I mean, the bond movies are so individualistic that this is kind of like, I'm just super psyched to see a new Carrie Fukunaga movie. Well, and, and, and speaking of directors, I mean, this will be the year we get our first David Fincher movie in six years. Yeah. Since gone girl. Yeah. And, and I know he's been working on Mindhunter, but this is a, fi- it's a film and it's a film about a, a film uh, about a screenwriter. And I think that's really interesting. And it's a film about the arguably the greatest movie ever made, Citizen Kane. Where Fincher's like, I probably could have done it better. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, I, I would have changed. If you've ever listened to his commentary on Chinatown where he's like, I would have changed that. Yeah, exactly. David Fincher, <laughs> David Fincher has no chill and no humility, and I kind of love him because of that. <laughs> it's the best. I love it so much. Um, but it, And then, you know, there are some interesting things happening with known properties like The Invisible Man from Blumhouse is not your traditional of the invisible man movie. It's, it's taking the story and making it socially relevant, uh, telling a tale of domestic abuse, um, where a woman's domestic abuser, her husband dies. And then she's convinced that he's not dead. He's, uh, actually invisible. It's a brilliant premise. It's a brilliant way to use that, to use that monster. And it shows, I mean, credit to universal realizing that dark universe wasn't going to be a thing, but they still have these monsters. How can they, better use them and by teaming up with Blumhouse I think they found a really smart combination there for sure and then you know Jordan Peele is producing a new uh and co-writing a new Candyman movie which they're keeping under wraps but it sounds like it has a pretty strong twist to it as well so it's not just going to be a straight up remake of Um, that other movie right um, well, and this year we might also get like, and speaking of like a remake of Candyman, this year might also we might get the remake of The Craft, which shot at the end of last year. Yeah, so that might be ready for this year. That's also from Blumhouse. So there's there's excite like in terms of remakes, there's stuff that feels like it could be feel very fresh in 2020. Like, I, have you ever seen the original Candyman? I have not. It's really interesting because it's like it's a horror film that's more about urban legend. Um, and it's very much set with, you know, within that black community with sort of this black supernatural villain, which is, uh, really interesting and sort of giving him that power, but it also kind of, it was, came out, I think 91, 92, um, it kind of stumbles into the sort of like the fear of a black man being with a white woman. And, you know, it doesn't really know how to handle that part of its story. So like, I look at something like Candyman, I'm like, there is potential here to make it better. Like you have a strong premise, but it could be made better in the right hands. And I'm very interested to see what they do with that remake. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's exciting. I mean, and then obviously you have Denis Villeneuve doing Dune, the first of a two-part adaptation, although they haven't greenlit the second movie yet. I don't think. Um, but it's planned as a two-parter. 
Um, even something like the witches from Robert Zemeckis, he's been so miss as of late. But like, not just miss, but missing by a wide margin. Yeah, missing it's, by a mile. <laughs> it's kind of fascinating to watch, like the director of like, and you know, I guess, I guess we shouldn't be that surprised that like, you know, oh, this guy who was really hot shit in the eighties and nineties is no longer really knocking it out of the park. But I think it's because he's still making films that are getting like wide distribution. Like it's not like, like Rob Reiner is also like, was like the hottest shit in the eighties and nineties. And yeah. now like no one sees his, like Rob Reiner still makes movies. Just no one goes to see them. And mm-hmm. like, they barely get released. Um, you know, John Carpenter, you know, King of the eighties cannot like, you know, and no one saw, uh, what was it? The Ward, I think it was, was his most recent film came out in 06 and no one went to see it. Uh, cause apparently it was quite poor, but like you yeah. still have Zemeckis out here being like, come see, welcome to Marwin. <laughs> and it's just like, Oh dear. Or allied or Al- allied is just boring. Welcome to Marwin is at least an interesting failure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That one's unfortunate. Um, I mean, jungle cruise is a pretty big swing. I'm curious to see. I mean, I guess not a big swing, but, um, it does sound like they're kind of going for a, kind of pirates of the caribbean-esque two films i kind of i'm very interested in because they're both being released this year is in the heights and west side story so two musicals uh with you know heavily focused on the puerto rican community in new york and one is from lin-manuel miranda who is part of that community directed by john m chu who previously did the step up movies did crazy rich asians is very understands the importance of diversity uh, they released the trailer for that at the end of last year, and it looks fantastic. Uh, mm-hmm. The musical won a Tony. When it's on stage, it won a Tony for Lin-Manuel Miranda. Um, and then, on the other hand, you have West Side Story from Steven Spielberg. Like, it's it's so weird that the like these two films will inevitably be compared to each other. Yeah. And to be fair, West Side Story is, you know, it's a remake. It's a, a story that's been told um, uh, twice before, once on on Broadway and another, um, in the Robert Wise movie, um, which is good, but very long. And, you know, it, Tony Kushner wrote the screenplay for West Side Story. Tony Kushner is a brilliant writer. Um, but it is interesting that, you know, it's going head to head with a, a more modern, I mean, it, I guess we'll have to see. I, I assume that there is some sort of thematic reason to tell West Side Story now. And I don't know what that is yet. But if it is trying to draw a line between the past and the present and uh, in terms of immigrants in America, it seems like the movie set in the present might do a better job of that. Yeah, it seems like I would give the edge to In the Heights. Yeah. <laughs> Be- well, <laughs> and not only that, because – well, and again, they're two kind of two different stories because in In the Heights, yeah. the Puerto Rican community isn't really – fighting with like a white community. It's just, it's sort of the struggle. Like it's hard to be an immigrant. Like immigrants are like, it's a power, they're part of the American character, but it is very hard to, to realize that dream. And, but the importance of that community, whereas West Side Story is about conflict between the Puerto Rican community and a white community in the 1950s and sort of how those sort of run up against each other. Yeah. Yeah. So that's going to be, Super curious. Yes. If we're talking about white dudes. We also got to talk about the trial of Chicago seven. Um, Aaron which... Sorkin <laughs> has opinions, <laughs> which I love Aaron Sorkin uh, to my detriment. I totally understand that he is problematic in a uh, few ways, but 
Yeah, I mean, this is a project I've been tracking for years. It was a film that was originally going to be directed by Steven Spielberg. It's about it's set in um, the 60s or 70s. It's about, um, you know, it's a political film. Uh, 68 is when it was set. Um, and it's a based essentially on a group of um, uh, people who were uh, they were charged with conspiracy to incite a riot Um relating to a protest uh, against the Vietnam War um, and countercultural protests that were going on. And the cast is insane. It's Sasha Baron Cohen, Eddie Redmayne, Yaya Abdul-Mateen II, Jeremy Strong, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Thomas Middleditch, Frank Langella, Mark Rylance, Michael Keaton. It's nuts. Um, but I'm sure that movie will also be met with uh, interest. Well, and not only that, but like, I mean, who knows if it'll really come together. I, I remember when we when uh, Molly's Game was coming out and we were told by someone that like that film barely existed. Like apparently it was a mess until somehow they found it in the editing room. Like it was not, it was very close to being a total disaster. And I would say even, even the finished product has. Yeah. But this is a courtroom drama courtroom thriller. And we know that Sorkin can knock those out of the park. So true. Yeah. The guy, the guy behind a few good men might know how to do a courtroom thriller. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. So I think I think it might be good, but we'll see. I mean, that's in that's in September, um, opening opposite Last Night in Soho, which would be interesting. I would not be surprised if both of those movies are at TIFF. Yeah, and uh, the Many Saints of Newark, the uh, Sopranos prequel that nobody really asked for. Yeah, so. I did not ask for that. And um, did you ever see David Chase's Not Fade Away? I didn't. It was on my DVR for like I think two and a half years, and I eventually just deleted it because every time I was like. I think I'm going to watch it. And then I was like, nah, I don't know. Yeah. I'm not a diehard Sopranos fan. So for me, like not fade away was like, eh, like, eh, whatever. and like even many States of Newark, like, eh, maybe, maybe it'll yeah. be interesting, but I'm not like, Oh, I got to know what, what Tony Soprano was like as a kid. <laughs> no, really don't need to know that. <laughs> um, so yeah, you know, it's, as you jump around the calendar, um, and of course, you know, one of the things that we're not mentioning, uh, or we haven't gone into is the amount of Netflix movies that yes. are coming our way. And Netflix released, a, they did like a thread of all of a lot of their slate of originals that they have coming down the line. And there's definitely like exciting stuff in there. Um, but I'm curious to sort of see like, what kind of release will it get and what will fly under the radar? And, you know, it's, you know, you look at sort of Netflix and. You know, if you told me at the beginning of 2019, like, hey, there's this movie called The King with Timothy Chalamet from the director of, you know, Animal Kingdom. And it's got Robert Pattinson in it. And like, oh, isn't that exciting? And like, no one cares about The King. Yeah. It like, well, I I will say I've talked to a number of people not in the industry who watched it and enjoyed it. But it seems like it's made no noise within like, you know, it obviously isn't an awards player. Um but that's the thing with Netflix movies is it's just so hard to gauge, like, what is a success and what does success look like? Right. And I think ultimately, you know, if we can maybe take a little side jaunt into awards territory, I think that might speak to why so many of their films get nominated for shit, but they can't bring home the win because yeah. there's no way to measure popular approval. Like, yeah. There's no way to be like, oh, well, a bunch of people saw this at a theater. That must mean that the people also approve this decision. Like there's no there's no way to say like, oh, popular consensus is on the side of marriage story because how like all the metrics are internal. Yeah, there's no there's no way to gauge like, well, everyone like everyone loves this movie. It's doing so well. 
And to be fair, some of those fly under the radar. I mean, Ford versus Ferrari, I think, crossed two hundred million at the box office, which is great um, for you know an essential, an original adult drama. Um, but it does feel like not a ton of people are talking about that. So I don't know. It's it's weird. It's it's hard to gauge. I I've talked to people that have watched Marriage Story and they're like, yeah, I never want to see that again. Like I agree, it was good, but it was rough. And people that are like, yeah, I'm never going to watch that movie. It seems too sad. So I don't know. Maybe people just want the king. <laughs> yeah. Who knows? It's it's tough. It's tough to figure it out. So you know that, and I think that's the thing about 2020 is it's tough to figure out like what will be a hit. Like yeah. at this point, can you tell me that like, oh, Fast and Furious 9 will definitely be a hit? I don't know. I think the Fast and Furious franchise might be running on fumes a bit. I am just so bad at predicting that franchise. Yeah, that's I true. Said that, I've said that like three times that's now. That's true. And every time people are like, give it to me. Well, and I was also like, oh, man, Hobbs and Shaw, it's going to be fucking huge. And it did fine, but it was not. Uh, it was not a world beater. No, it crossed – yeah, like seven hundred fifty-eight million, which is good. But I, my assumption was like, oh, this is going to take over. Like, this is going to be bigger than the Fast and Furious franchise, and not so. Yeah, exactly. So I don't know. I mean, Mulan looks interesting in that it it's not just a shot-for-shot recreation like Aladdin and Lion King were. Yeah, I'm really um, I'm really excited for Mulan because it feels like the better. It feels like if you're going to keep doing these Disney remakes, it'd be better to do them along the lines of Mulan, where you maybe you like you copy the particular plot beats, um, but you sort of free it up so that you don't have to copy every damn thing down to the shot. Yeah. Well, and that's that's Pete's Dragon. They already did that years ago, and which Pete's is the Dragon infuriating is good. thing. And it's good, but it did not make near as much money as any of the other ones. And so I think they were just like, let's just make it more more like the old. I mean, Beauty and the Beast was the one that really exploded. And they were like, oh, that's our formula. I know. It makes me sad. Yeah. But uh, I am excited for Mulan. I think the, the trailers for that have been really promising. Yeah, same here. I think it'll be interesting. But I don't know. Like, is the Bond franchise... Will it do well in April? Is it the on bond, its way out? The Bond franchise is so unpredictable. Yeah. As like, you know, there's some franchises like, yeah, I, I expected it. Like I look at some franchises. I'm like, yeah, that'll probably be all right. Like a Fast and Furious 9, like I expect, like I don't think it'll be the greatest film ever. I'm like, I know what that film is. I know what to expect. You know, box office wise, you know, that could fluctuate. But in terms of quality, I have an idea of what Fast and Furious 9 is. Yeah. Um. The Bond franchise can take you from Skyfall, which is awesome and amazing, to Spectre, and it sucks. And yes. it's like, how did this happen? What is going on? And I think it's because the produce, like, like the Bond franchise is very producer run. Like it brings uh-huh. in different directors, but like, you know, um, Barbara uh, Broccoli and uh, Michael, is it Michael G. Wilson? Uh, yeah, Eon basically. They. They, that is their one franchise. That is the one thing that they work on. It's where all their, like, that is, they are Bond. And they have to keep figuring out how to make a character like James Bond work in the 21st century, which is not easy. Like, it, James Bond is a Cold War character. He works perfectly well in the Cold War. It's very hard to make him work, uh, especially when, like, you know, you have a character and his rotation of things, and like, there's there's cars, there's gadgets, there's a villain, and there's a woman. <laughs> 
And the fact that those are the woman is as interchangeable as car tells you something about (laughs) that. This character might be slightly retrograde. So, you know, it's hard to make a bond film. I get that, but you know, there, I have no idea what to expect from no time to die because I like Fukunaga a lot. Uh, the fact that they brought on Phoebe Waller bridge to work on the screenplay is enticing, but I'm also like, why would you keep bringing back Purvis and Wade to work on these movies. Like what, what is your attachment with these two screenwriters who also gave you like die another day? Like it's, it's weird what the producers choose to listen to and not listen to in terms of like how to guide this franchise. And also they know for them, this is Daniel Craig is done. Like Daniel Craig want, like even before, like when, when Spectre came out, he's like, kill me. But you know, before No Time to Die even started filming, he's like, kill me now. <laughs> like, I don't want to do Bond anymore. I've done enough Bond movies. This is the last one. Uh, and I think he obviously really wants to go on, on a, out on a high note. But, you know, it's it's Bond. It's tough. It's a really tough franchise. So this has to serve as an ending to Craig's tenure. And then the series will be inevitably rebooted for the next Bond. And I also don't think the producers are bold enough to be like, let's cast anyone other than a white British guy as Bond. I don't think they're ever going to do that. So. Well, and it also feels like it hasn't in the premise of the last two films been like, you know, Casino Royale was like new Bond and he's fresh and new and exciting and different. And then immediately it was like, he's too old. He's retiring. He's done. Bond is a 007 is out. Like, it's just like the premise of the last couple have just been like, he's old and it's tired. So it kind of feels like they've done that already, even though this is his last one. Yeah, it feels like they keep leading into like Bond is a broken down old man who has no place in the world, (laughs) which in Skyfall is great, but it doesn't work. You can't keep trotting that one out. Do it three times. Well, then Inspector, it's sort of like. Spectre is such a bad film. (laughs) Like, it's like, ah, what if there was a villain behind all of it? And it's Blofeld. And it's like, but he doesn't know who Blofeld is. No, it was his brother. Like, (laughs) what? Why? Why? I think the other big thing here is that it's been five years since Spectre. And that's kind of the larger uh, thing of the slate here is five years. And if you think about what has happened to Netflix in five years, and how viewing habits have changed, uh, like it's astronomical. So, like, is there even still an audience for? I mean, there there's obviously still an audience for Bond, but are they gonna get that younger demographic, or do they just not care anymore? And you look at the slate, and you're like, well, there's not a ton of stuff, but everyone's been binging The Witcher. Um, and you've got stuff like, uh, you know, Space Force comes out this year. That's the next show from the guy who created The Office with Steve Carell. You've got on Disney Plus, you've got WandaVision and Falcon and Winter Soldier, which are essentially Marvel movies on Disney Plus. Um, it did like Why the Last Man comes out this year. It just feels like television and streaming, more and more people are spending their time doing that or just watching straight up YouTube. Um, so you know, the viability of some of these franchises. That's, that's why when you're talking about like Bill and Ted and it's been however many years since the last one, like over two decades, um, what you, do you have any hope of bringing in new audiences or are you just kind of making it for the people who grew up with it? Yeah. And I think the other problem is like the franchise game is kind of, I know why that, why I know the reason it exists as it does. Like, the reason that like Disney spends $200 million on a Marvel film is because they expect to get $1 billion back 
So a yeah. profit of 800 million. But I think the more viable fran- the more viable option for most studios going forward in a more competitive environment isn't to be like, oh, well, let's just keep spending $200 million on franchises and hope that they score a billion dollars because more often than not, they're not going to. You're making a big gamble, which I get the higher payoff is enticing, but you know, you're probably, you know, if, if Hobbs and Shaw isn't getting there, this notion that like, oh, well, our franchise will certainly get to a billion. I think that's, that's foolhardy. And I think, you know, the, the, to me, uh, a more viable option is what looking at something like what Knives Out did. Knives Out costs $40 million and it's made over 200 million worldwide. So that is a return. Now I know that there are prints and advertising. So let's say, let's say, you know, if you double the cost of the budget, you get the cost of what it costs to print and advertising. That's 80 million. Even at 80 million, now you're looking at like 120 million of profit already for Knives Out, which is an original film, you know, with, uh, word of mouth hit. And I understand it's like, it's nobody knows anything to, to quote William Goldman and that it's hard to know what will be a hit and what won't be. But I think if you invest in talent and, you know, but you also don't break the bank, I think that's a better way forward than being like, yeah, franchises are everything. Let's pay $200 million and go nuts and fuck it, man. Let's be legends. You know, I just, <laughs> <laughs> I just don't think that's the way, the right way forward. No, I don't either. And I think, uh, you know, Spielberg and Lucas predicted the that kind of doom and gloom that that uh, you know people would be spending studios would be spending so much money on movies and they would have two or three flops in a row that would just bankrupt studios. Uh, and already, you know, Disney gobbled up Fox, so like Fox has the new Mutants coming out this year, but that's essentially a write off for Disney. <laughs> like Disney didn't make it. Uh, I highly doubt it's going to cross over with the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So it's kind of like here's this thing in April that may make some money, but it's kind of chump change to them. It doesn't really matter. Um, and I'd be curious to see what the, what the breakout hits this year, because there's going to have to be, there are, there just aren't as many franchise films opening this year. So either people are going to stay home and watch streaming, or they're going to show up to something like, uh, you know, soul or woman in the window or, uh, last night in Soho. And I think there will be breakout hits. I don't think people want to stay home all the time. And I get yeah. that the theater, the theatrical experience is dodgy at the major chains. I get that. But I also don't think people want to be like, oh, let me just scroll endlessly on Netflix and, you know, see what's that all about. You know, let's, I, I just I don't think streaming can can be the only option for people. But maybe yeah. I'm wrong. But I, I always will always believe that theatrical has something to offer. I'm a big believer in that. I think that communal experience is valuable. And I think people want to get out and, and, and go to a movie if, if they've heard that it's good. And I think that this will, this could be a very big year for the word of mouth hit. For sure. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm hopeful and honestly looking forward to a lot of stuff coming out this year. Yeah, me too. Yeah. I think it's an exciting year, uh, because it's not as dominated by event films and stuff will be added and I'm sure we'll get more things coming out. But like, if you look at December, like there's no big, there's no Star Wars. There's no Mary Poppins Returns. There's no fucking cats. Like it's the Croods too. Like, and Tom and Jerry are the two most family friendly movies, but those aren't movies that like the adults are going to want to go see. Yeah. I, first off way to go saying more cats. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I would also say that like, yeah, there's also no avatar. Like avatar doesn't come out theoretically until next year. We'll fucking see. They they pushed it again. 
So who knows? Yeah, I'm. Uh, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see what the. I, 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 will mean, say, I will say this in our defense, if I can, if I can market, if I can market the website for a second. Yes. I think now more than ever, it's bet it's good to be tuned in to the people that you trust about movies. Yeah, um, and that and if it's not us, that's fine. I don't, you know, trust who you, trust who you trust. But I would say with less guidance about like, ooh, I like this franchise, or I like, you know, how this is going. You'll want to be tuned in to the people whose job it is to see these movies. Like it's literally our job to cover these films and follow the buzz and see them and give you our opinion. And so if you're like, I don't know, do I really want to, you know, roll the dice on uh, the way back? You know, I like Ben Affleck, but, you know, his drama stuff is a little hit and miss. Like, we'll tell you if the way back is, is worth your time. Yeah. So, you know, that's how that I would say, you know, good year for us, because, you know, when there's franchise like. I would say that there's less stuff this year that's also critic proof. Like I fully acknowledge that like you don't have to listen to a single person. You you know you're going to see Star Wars. You know, you know you're not listening to us. You know you're going to yeah. see Endgame. You're not listening to us. So, you know, this is this is for me exciting. I'm happy because also as a critic, it's good to be able to champion movies. So if I see something like at Sundance that I really like, I'm going to be excited to tell people like go see X, Y, and Z when it comes to theaters later this year or yeah. to Netflix. A lot of Sundance movies are going to be on Netflix. Yeah, no, that's true. Um, I, and, and we'll be there within the month and we'll be bringing you a bunch of reviews. Plug, 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 uh, check the website. <laughs> Cause we'll have reviews of a lot of really cool stuff coming out this year. Yes. Um, but yeah, I think I agree. I think more than ever, it's going to be, uh, you know, paying attention to like, you know, cause it's not built in stuff. So like, is the woman in the window worth seeing? I don't know. Are the reviews good? You know, you know who thinks the woman in the window isn't worth seeing is Tracy Letts. <laughs> Tracy Letts, the screenwriter. Yes. <laughs> I have heard. But like just using that as an example. So. Yeah. No, this should be should be fun. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, with that, let's uh, let's move into uh, talking a little bit about. Well, oh, before we do that, what do you think will be the highest grossing film? Of this year, after we've just gone on about how no one this this year is really unpredictable, <laughs> I it's really tough. I'm going through the calendar and I'm like, and like there's not like Mulan maybe, but I don't know. Like Disney's not a sure thing this year. Uh, Jungle Cruise, if it's good, if it's not good, probably not. Um, so right now, I'm going to put my money on Wonder Woman 1984, just purely based on anecdotal evidence like every woman i know is super psyched to see that movie and a ton of guys i know are super psyched to see that movie the first movie made i think yeah like 820 million dollars worldwide and this one has the 80s going for it and it's coming out the beginning of june start of summer and really its main competition is fast and furious 9 Mm -hmm. which i don't know maybe it'll be fast and furious 9 and then we're all done for (laughs) so Um, who knows what do you think I'm going to I'm going to take a bit of a swing here uh, and I'm going to put my money on Eternals because I think it has that Thanksgiving holiday going for it. Um, Disney always seems to, to dominate at the box office. Um, you've got a really exciting cast and I think you have a cast that kind of pull because it's more of an ensemble. You're like you've got Kumal Nanjiani fans and you've got Angelina Jolie fans. You've got Richard Madden fans. You've got Kit Harington fans and like. So you're pulling from all these different fandoms into one Marvel film. 
Um, and I think also people get excited at being like, it's the Marvel brand, so I know it, but also I can get in at the ground floor and see what this Eternals business is about. And I trust in Chloe Zhao. Not to say I don't trust in Patty Jenkins. If you hadn't said Wonder Woman 1984, I would have said that, but you took it from <laughs> me. So now I have to say, now I have to say Eternals, but I think Eternals has, has a shot. Uh, can I change my answer? Yes. I'm going to say Doolittle. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Which comes out in less than two weeks? Yes. Two I see weeks. it on Saturday. <laughs> I'm so excited because it looks like a trash fire. Um, uh, Cats 2.0. I mean, <laughs> and they're both from the same studio. Both Uni- from the same studio. What a world, Universal. <laughs> what a world, Universal. Good, good job. Um, but I will just keep their eye on that Fast and Furious 9 release date, and they're like, that's when the money comes in. We'll be I, if we just make it till then. I will bet you that within six months of, of Doolittle coming out, Robert, De Niro, uh, not Robert Downey Jr. will all be fl- already be floating a return to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I wouldn't be shocked. I mean, so he was a, I mean, he's been like percolating plans for like, what he's going to do for a while the judge was his big swing uh like that's what he used his clout from the marvel cinematic universe for um i mean i know right after iron man you had uh like due date and stuff like that tropic thunder he shot at the same time as iron man so that wasn't a windfall um but the judge he produced with his uh wife uh susan downey and uh he starred in it I think he was hoping for some Oscar attention, big prestige movie, and it didn't really do anything. And then he just spent the rest of the time doing Marvel movies. And, you know, he was going to produce and star in this Perry Mason series on HBO. He backed out of starring in it uh, for scheduling reasons or something. I don't know. Matthew Reese is now the star of it. Um, He's been working on a few other, like, interesting projects through his producing company, but has not starred in any of them. And you look at his schedule, what's coming up next? Sherlock Holmes 3. It's going back to the well of the franchises, and I do not like that franchise. <laughs> I, I I'm, I'm more I, excited about it because Dexter Fletcher's directing the third yeah. installment, so we'll see. I just I love Robert Downey Jr. and I love Jude Law. I do not like their chemistry together. That's I just fair. Not have fun with those movies. That's fair. But. You're you're more of a Holmes and Watson fan. <laughs> yes, <laughs> more of an elementary fan. Um, I did watch Holmes and Watson, and it was as bad as everyone said. It's rare. That I watch something at home that is supposed to be bad, just like watching it on HBO, and I'm like, oh, that was a waste of time. Usually I'm like, all right, yeah, I knew what I was getting in for. That was fine. Holmes and Watson is garbage. Yep. <laughs> um, all right. Well, let's, let's – instead of talking about garbage films, let's talk about the, the best films we saw from 2019. Let's do it. Um, do you want to just talk about your top five? That way we tend to get yeah. – all right. So what was your number five, five pick? Um, so my number five, and uh, apologies to longtime listeners, I know we're a little late on getting to our best of 2019, but we did a lot of things in December, uh, and there was Star Wars, and uh, you know, hopefully you read all of our best of the decade content in November. So there was a lot going on. Um, we posted these in December, so uh, you may have already read them before, um, but my top five kicks off with The Irishman, which I think is a masterpiece. Um, you know, it's long yes but it doesn't feel long i just think it's a really smart and thoughtful meditation on life and mortality and regret i love the idea of scorsese going back to this gangster genre to uh say something different something new um he's clearly opining about his own career and where he's at in his own life at the time um 
And I just think it's just a brilliantly constructed film. And unfortunately, it seems like a lot of people just aren't giving it a shot because it's too long, which is dumb. Yeah, that's yeah. Come on. (laughs) What what better thing are you doing? Yeah, honestly, someone's gonna be like, I'm raising my children. And I'm like, well, that's (laughs) damn it. That's fair. (laughs) That's fair, I guess. Have your kids watch The Irishman with you. It's fun for the family. Yeah. Do not do this. <laughs> do not. Ah, that's like, I'm De Niro and you're Paquin. Never speak to me again. <laughs> what is your number five? Uh, my number five is Little Women, um, which I was just absolutely taken by um, and just shows that Greta Gerwig is, is going to be one of the kind of major directing talents of this decade, at least. Yeah. Um, Lady Bird was no fluke. Uh, she takes this material that has been done many times. Okay. It's not like, oh, Little Women, that unknown gem. Like, it's been done many times, adapted many times. It's hard to find a new spin on it. And she made arguably the best one because she figured out she didn't, she knew where to be respectful with the material and where to challenge it. And I think that's a very tricky thing to do. I think sometimes you get too wrapped up in like, how do I be faithful and how do I respect it and like treat it like this fragile thing? And she's like, no, I'm going to chop it up. I'm going to chop up the chronology. So it veers so that it's episodic nature has more of a thematic through line. And then at the end, I'm going to challenge the ending of its own story. I'm going to get very meta with the kind of story I'm telling to make a larger point about the depiction of women and what women's interests are. And I think that's so freaking brilliant. Uh, Not to mention just the level of craft on display. Like little women is so freaking good. Um, I was, I was, I had high hopes for it. I was still blown away by it. Yeah. It's my number two. Uh, I have seen it twice now and I was a sobbing mess both times. It's so, you just feel like you're in the hands of a master. Like every frame is saying something. Every cut is motivated. Every shot composition is meticulously put together. And yet it still feels kind of effortless and organic and free flowing. Um, but you know, you just know so much thought was put into to it because it just works like clockwork. It works so well. And the juxtaposition of uh, adulthood and childhood and the idea of being a child and your life being full of possibilities and hopes and dreams. And I'm going to do this when I grow up and I want to do that. Uh, it stands in stark contrast to the adulthood of these characters and and what happens when reality sets in and you discover, no, that's not how my life's going to go. My life is actually going to go this way. And then finding peace with that and, and making peace with the life that you have built um, as opposed to the life that you had dreamed of when you were a child. It's kind of funny. I'm going to make a little sidestep, but it's funny to sort of see the like appreciation of a film like Joker as serious and mature. And it's all about a guy who grows up and doesn't get what he wants. Like that's, that's Joker. I didn't get what I wanted. So I'm going to take it out on the world. And little women is actually, is the more mature film because it says like, yeah, you may not get what you want, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you burn everything to the ground. Yeah, and getting what you want isn't necessarily what you need. Right. Sometimes there's a better path for you. And I, I just love what she did with Joe March and with her story throughout that film. Uh, and the casting is brilliant. Uh, God, that movie is perfect. It's probably going to – it's definitely going to make uh, – You know, if I had seen it before I had made my best of the decade list, it would have been on there. Nice. It's, 
it's that good. And uh, like you said, I think Greta Gerwig is just a towering talent. And we're going to look back on, on, on this as kind of the beginning of just, uh, you know, an incredible, incredible career um, on the, you know, I like Noah Baumbach. I like Marriage Story a whole lot. I don't love all of his films. I think that Greta Gerwig is a little bit of a better storyteller than Noah Baumbach. And to be fair, she had more practice. I mean, she had written and co-written before she directed. But still, I think that that to say, I don't think Greta Gerwig is comparable to a Noah Baumbach. I think she's comparable to like a Martin Scorsese or a David Fincher. I agree with that. Yeah. Um, What's your number four? Uh, My number four is Parasite. Which ah, I know is also on your list. That's my number one. <laughs> that's your number one. Uh, and it Parasite. was on my best of the decade. <laughs> so there. No, there you go. Uh, Parasite is brilliant. Uh, it is uh, so meticulously crafted. I mean, I, I it, it's one of those movies that I saw it and it struck me really hard. The the way that Bong Joon-ho threaded his themes into his story and again, every shot means something. Every composition is is uh, uh, dripping with kind of thematic weight. There's no there's no shot wasted in the film. You look at a shot and you look at where the characters are placed and you look at the image that he is presenting to you and that image is saying something. Uh, it's art, and it's the kind of film that after I saw it, I had not I had seen Snowpiercer. That's it. Uh, I hadn't seen any other Bong Joon Ho's films. It's the kind of film that you see it, and afterwards you want to go and track down every single one of that director's films and and catch up. And I had such a joyful, wonderful time going back through Bong Joon Ho's filmography after I saw Parasite, um, because his other films are also really good. Spoiler alert! Yeah, um, I still need to see Memories of Murder and Mother. Those are the two I still need to see. Memories of Murder uh, next to Parasite is my favorite. Nice. Uh, and I don't love Okja. That's the one I haven't revisited. I've only seen it once. Um, but Memories of Murder is is really terrific. And he's definitely got a lot in common with David Fincher and Edgar Wright in that everything is just so, like, perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, Parasite is a, is a towering achievement. It really is. I think it's especially as as, social, as as people become sort of more aware of the shortcomings of capitalism and really start questioning – you know, a system that has stood for, for decades and unquestioned is just like the best of all things. And I think this will be, we'll look at this as sort of the, one of the artistic achievements that really called into sharp criticism of, of that system. Uh, and I think that's a, a powerful achievement and to do so without being pedantic about it either preachy yeah. or pedantic, but to make a film that's also just incredibly entertaining. Yeah. And funny and sad and, mm-hmm devastating and joyful and it's got everything. Yeah. Um, my number four is a film that not many people saw, even though you could see it right now, if you like, if you have Amazon prime and that's the report, um, the report stuck with me since Sundance. I think it's just, it's that kind of mature journalism thriller that really takes on the world. And I'm very big on movies that feel like they, that, that hold the Bush administration accountable um, because I feel like a lot of it went down the memory hole. Uh, it's just like, and now like George W. Bush just gets to be the guy who like makes shitty paintings and like, you know, hang out, hangs out with Ellen DeGeneres. And it's just like, Oh, silly uncle W. And it's like, no, he oversaw war crimes. Let me tell you how. And so the report is about torture. We tortured people and we didn't. And not only did we torture people, it wasn't fucking useful because torture is never useful. And just to, to steal a line from Reservoir Dogs, you know, if you torture this guy long enough, he'll tell you who started the great Chicago fire. But that don't make it fucking show. <laughs> you know, like 
think you have my Chris Penn impression, everyone. <laughs> um, but the the report is like it's really sharp. Adam Driver, I think, has had a fantastic year between this and Marriage Story, just showing like, oh, oh, so he's just one of the best actors of his. It, it had me from from start to finish, and it's just one of those films that I really hope people will will give a shot to. Especially since, again, if you have Amazon Prime, you can just watch it right now. Just just go watch it. You know, it's really good. Yeah, I love that movie. I saw it at Sundance as well, uh, and it really stuck with me. It's I love that it's just a methodical procedural movie like it doesn't doesn't feel the need to give adam driver's character a wife or a concerned girlfriend or something it's like nah we're just gonna tell the story yeah the drama here is what happened not like ooh, how will it affect his personal life yeah yeah so um what was your number three my number three is knives out which was the most entertaining movie i watched in in the entirety of 2019 and I had such a joyful experience watching it the first time. And then the second time was even more entertaining because you could see how well Ryan Johnson had crafted this whodunit. And every reveal that happens later is set up earlier in the film. Every single thing uh, is perfectly set up. And there were things you didn't notice the first time that are there that are hinting towards what happens later. Um, And they're not Easter eggs. They just prove that this story is kind of iron clad like it's foolproof like the the way he put this all together just clicks and i just had such a fun time watching this movie and i love how it you know it kind of tackles class and uh what it's like to be a family in uh you know the the late 2010s um and the conversations and arguments that ensue um and i don't know it's just it it's so much fun and uh there's a lot to be said for making a movie that, that that's that much fun nowadays. Yeah, I you know I I've seen it three times now, and the thing that leaped out leapt out at me um, on the most recent viewing is that I think what, that Ryan Johnson is he's a director that's fascinated with the concept of the truth, and he brings that into all of his films. And his films are different; they jump between genres. But you can see in, in Knives Out, he's very interested in, like, what is another version of the truth? And so, and the first act, when you have the characters telling about, like, how did their dad's birthday party go? And different times, it's like, we're the ones next to him as he's about to blow out the candles. Like, it's how these characters see themselves and the truths that they believe in and what guides them. And you can take that all the way back to Brick, his, his first film, which is uh, a noir try, trying to solve a murder mystery. And Brothers Bloom, which is about con men, about a character, you know, Mark Ruffalo's character who's trying to tell a lie so good that it becomes the truth. And then you have Looper, which hinges on a revelation about the truth of your very life and your existence and what you've come around to. And even in The Last Jedi, you have the whole Rashomon of it where, you know, Mark, you know, you have um, uh, Luke Skywalker and and Kylo Ren telling a different version of the truth of what happened uh, between them. And so to sort of see it come in Knives Out, it's just, it's, he's a director with the, it's nice to sort of see recurring themes and motifs in a director's work. Uh, and I think that's sort of what separates them from a journeyman director because they have certain things that they want to keep exploring, even if the genres change. Yeah. And, uh, 
you know, I don't know. I'm super excited about the idea of continuing on with Benoit Blanc, and I really want to see that movie, but I'm selfishly just want to see another original film from Ryan Johnson. Um, not that I have any doubt that, you know, a Knives Out sequel that's going to happen is going to be any uh, less entertaining or less fun. But I, don't know, I, I just selfishly, I, I want Ryan Johnson to clone himself three times yeah, that'd so that be... we can get a new, a new Ryan Johnson movie every year. Yeah, the Ryan Johnson Cinematic Universe. Yes. Give that to me, please. Yeah. Uh, my number three is 1917, um, which is just as far as like an experience I had in the theater this year. I uh, this was the one that sort of like just had me at the edge of my seat uh, to tell this story of these two soldiers trying to deliver a message and telling it in one take. Usually the one take thing feels a little bit like a gimmick or like for directors who don't really know what they're doing. It's sort of like, look, I made this really un- it's long unbroken take. And it's just like, but why, what purpose did it serve? And I think in 1917, it attaches you at the hip to these characters and it really puts you in, th- in that sort of, it, it removes the safety of the cut to try to heighten how dangerous, um, you know, the, the experiences. And I think for someone like, well, obviously war is dangerous, but I think, you know, there's a cavalier nature with war. And I think, you know, when you, I think there's, there's a danger of viewing war as entertaining. And mm-hmm. I think one of what 1917 does is it shows the danger of war, but it doesn't, it's not like, it's not like saving private Ryan where it's like war is gruesome. It's that war is, unrelenting um and i think by by diving into that sort of unrelenting nature of it it makes 1917 a unique entry into this genre uh and really not like nothing else in it and i was really riveted by it yeah i've seen a lot of criticisms against the one take and and how the movie could have benefited from cuts and edits but i'm with you i just feel like the experiential nature of it makes it unique and makes it necessary it's so easy to think of war and sending people off to war as this kind of uh, intangible thing of, you know, like toy soldiers or something. And I think it's uh, I, I think it's really nice what Sam Mendes did here in, in putting you in the shoes of this soldier and and then the feelings and and the twists and turns that happen, the the um, the things that befall his character. You feel them so uh, viscerally because of that one-shot nature yeah it's it's a film that i'm very excited to see again on the big screen um because it just it, it envelops you yeah uh what's well, my number two is little women all right and, and my number two is marriage story and my number one is marriage story well there you go so this will just wrap up talking about marriage story which i you know i rewatched this uh marriage story why rewatched it with my wife and, you know, the thing about marriage story is like, people are like, oh, I don't know. It seems like a bit of a downer. And like, there are moments that are, that are downbeat, but I don't find marriage story to be a grind. I really don't No, I find it really entertaining, um, because it's just so well-written. Um, the performances are so strong and it, it just feels human. And I feel like, honestly, like I, you know, I like Marvel movies. I like, you know, Star Wars movies. I, I, I think that escapism uh, has value to it, especially when you're able to find something, a larger truth within that sort of fantasy. But I also think it's important to sort of live alongside people who go through realistic scenarios. And this notion of, of Noah Baumbach made a procedural about divorce, I think is, has a lot of merit to it and sort of watching it play out. I don't feel that it's voyeuristic or exploitative. I find it 
really empathetic to both characters and it, it creates a really powerful experience. I think what upsets people about marriage story is that it can make you very uncomfortable. I mean, the the truth of the matter is that half of all relationship, half of all marriages end in divorce. Um, at least, I don't know what the most recent statistic is. All of um, marriages end in divorce. That's the reason. all of marriage. Okay. All the recent statistic is all marriages end in divorce. <laughs> relationships are fragile, and relationships. Uh, are evolving. And I think the brilliance of marriage story is that it does not paint one side as the villain. It makes it so clear that these, and it's not, it's also not as if these two people didn't love each other. That's not their problem. Their problem was not that they fell out of love with each other. They will always love each other. I think their problem is that they want two different lives. And that feels like something that is common. And I think in a lot of marriages, that's something that people just decide to deal with, that you know, one person decides I'm just not going to get my life that I live, and I think sometimes that can cause issues and problems and resentment that builds up. Sometimes those relationships end, sometimes they don't. But obviously, this movie is striking a nerve. It feels very familiar to a lot of people because it is getting into um, kind of the, you know, not the nastier sides, of, but the the aspects of relationship that people don't like to talk about. I mean, uh, there, uh, so many like relationship movies hinge on like an infidelity and there is an infidelity in this movie, but it's not, it's not the thing that breaks them up. Um, I don't know. I just find it unique in how human the movie is in approaching both of its, uh, lead characters. And it's upsetting because, you love them. It's upsetting because you know that they love each other and it's upsetting because you know that they can't be together. Yeah. I think that's why it's so emotional when you get to the end. It's not emotional because, you know, oh, um, that person finally got what they deserved or um, that person still loves the other person but it's not going to work out. It's much more complex than that and that's relationships. That's life. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, that's the thing. Marriage Story is a movie for adults and I think – Honestly, don't, don't watch this one with your kids. Yeah, definitely don't watch this one with your kids. You know, watch the squid and the whale with your kids. <laughs> <laughs> I watched the squid and the whale. When I was young. <laughs> They'll find new uses for bookcases. <laughs> um, no, but marriage story is great. If you have Netflix, watch watch that. Um, all right. Um, you know, do you want? I, do, I I know we didn't talk about this before we started recording, but do you have any recently watched that you want to share? I mean, I watched a lot of things over the holidays. I, I started – I'm very proud of myself. I watched five – I've started – there were five days so far into, into this year, and I watched five movies I hadn't seen before, and I was actually pretty proud of that. Um, what, what have you seen lately that you want to talk about? Um, so I – so uh, – well, one thing, The Witcher. I watched The Witcher, and it's fucking a blast. Mm-hmm. Um, it's super silly. It knows exactly what it is. It's the first kind of like Game of Thrones ripoff show that I'm actually like, yeah. I'm I'm in it. I dig it because it's not trying to be Game of Thrones. Um, it's not self-serious, but it's also just like super packed with exposition and plot and lore and mythology. Uh, and I dig it. I like it a lot. Um, I also saw The Long Kiss Goodnight, which I had never seen. Ooh. Yeah. 
that movie is a blast. That movie is on Netflix now, uh, written by Shane Black. Uh, Gina Davis plays this woman who um, has amnesia. She's made a nice life for herself in the suburbs. Um, she could do weird things like throw knives and stuff, and then she discovers like, oops, I'm actually an assassin. Uh, and bad guys come after her. And Gina Davis gets to play like two different roles. She's really great in it. It's also like the most 90s action or soundtrack with like guitars like wow all the time. Oh, yeah. It's, I mean, what? Rennie Harlan is the director, I think. Yeah. Yeah, he is. Um, so that one uh, is good. Highly recommended. Um, caught up with Dark Waters, which was fine. <laughs> I think your review uh, kind of hit it bang on. Um, it was fine. <laughs> I don't have much to say about Dark Waters other than like, yeah, I agree. Uh, Todd Haynes, I too agree. Um, and I saw Layer Cake, which I had never seen, and was solid, but I think that movie, um, the problem with that movie is that it is so derivative in terms of like, it's so of the, its time in terms of all of those Guy Ritchie ripoffs, which were then ripoffs of Quentin Tarantino, that it just feels a little familiar, but it is a fun story and interesting, and it's Matthew Vaughn's first film, and Daniel Craig is really good in it, so I had a lot of fun with that. But the big one that I saw that I can't stop thinking about is Gerald's Game, which is the Mike Flanagan film on Netflix. Uh, Carla Gugino and Bruce Greenwood play a couple who go away for the weekend. He ties her to the bed as part of a sex game, and then he dies. And she's stuck, chained to the bed, can't get out. Um, That's the whole movie. She starts to have hallucinations. She starts to have flashbacks to her childhood, working through some traumas. And it handles trauma in a really fascinating and interesting way um, and thoughtful way. Um, it's it's sensitive about it. And Carla Gugino is very good in it. Um, but it has a scene in it. And I had heard people talk about a scene in it that's very hard to watch. And I have never looked away harder from my television than I did in watching the scene. I will not tell you what the scene is, but if you have seen the movie, you know what scene it is. I almost had to leave the room. Um for gore purposes uh it's rough (laughs) but it's a good film i enjoyed it uh it's on netflix it was made for netflix mike flanagan obviously did haunting a pill house dr sleep oculus a bunch of really good films i'm a big fan of his um and this is one i hadn't seen so that was that was my break those are the ones i hadn't seen before but also rewatched uh some stuff so very cool yeah gerald's game is one i've been meaning to get around to so um, I want you to watch it so we can talk about the scene. All right. Well, well, well it's, it's a date. Okay. <laughs> um, for me, okay, so the best film I saw, what I watched last night, was The Invitation, which you've talked about on this podcast before. Yes. Um, like, and I was like, like Karen Kusama, I was like, oh, yeah, she's pretty good. You know, I mean, you know, Destroyer's all right. And, you know, Jennifer's body is, deserves a critical reappraisal. I, I, you know, and Ion Flux is, you know, who, who can blame anyone for Ion Flux, really? That's, that feels more like a, a, a victim of studio meddling. And, you know, but the invitation is like, oh, she is unstoppable. Like the direction in that film, like every shot is masterful. The direct, the performances are incredible. Like this is just a director at the top of her game showing everyone how it's done. The film is, I will never watch that movie again because it's (laughs) so uncomfortable. Um, Because, like, even if you think you know where it's going, it still makes it like a deeply uncomfortable experience. Like, and the film is... Like in the first five minutes, the the lead characters accidentally hit a coyote and he has to mercy kill the coyote. Mm -hmm. And that's the energy that the film wants you to carry with it for all of the film. So like for a hundred minutes, it's like sitting on a coiled spring. 
Yeah. It's just like, ah, like, ah, but it, it's, it's so good. Like, I can't deny the craft of it. Um, and it's like a really, to me, this is what Ari Oster has been failing to do with his movies. Like, The Invitation is a movie about grief that has kind of a cult aspect to it. But it doesn't get hung up on the cult shit. It's more about grief and how do you live with grief. And Ari Aster is like, give me that cult bullshit. I want that. <laughs> Shovel that into my gullet. And I like, like the cult bullshit. The cult bullshit, is, it gets so – because the problem with the cult bullshit is it eventually transforms into fear of a faceless other. And I'm like, that – I'm bored with that. That's – grow up. The cult is going – the cult of Paimon is going to get me. Oh, fuck off. <laughs> Make people deal with human emotions, Ari. Payment's scary, man. If you say so. Um, <laughs> I would say I would say Ari Aster. Like, the, like, the invitation, I think, shows how it's done. I'll just say that. Um, I also watched The Craft, which I had never seen before and has some really interesting things going on, but it doesn't quite get there. Um, it, it feels like The Craft is... I'm very excited for Zoe Lister-Jones' remake because I think The Craft has some interesting ideas about feminine anger and female power. Uh, but the film, when it was really released in the 90s, it was written by a guy, it was directed by a guy. And I think ultimately it kind of reduces it down to like a monkey's paw situation where it's like, be careful what you wish for. You know, you, you think you want power, but are you sure? And uh, But Feruza Bulk is really fun to watch. I'm a, I like her performance in that a lot. Yeah. Uh, um, what else did I say? I saw... Um, UHF, which was a blast. I was, ang- I, I'd never seen, I mean, I'm a, I'm a big Weird Al fan. I just had never gotten around to seeing UHF and I had so much fun with UHF. UHF yeah, is like, what if Weird Al songs were a movie? And like, that's UHF. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really funny and silly in like all the best middle school kind of ways. Um, <laughs> yeah. I saw it when I was a kid and I was like, this is extremely my shit. Yeah. So UHF was a lot of fun. Um, I feel like I'm forgetting another one, but the worst film I saw, I saw it on New Year's Day, uh, watched on Disney Plus with my wife, uh, The Sword in the Stone, Disney's animated Sword in the Stone is garbage. Like that film, it's ugly, like, because they're using that sort of Xeroxing technique, so everything looks like it's been hastily sketched, Um, and it doesn't have a plot. Basically, the plot, like, here's Sword in the Stone, like, hey... So you know what people really like about Arthurian legend is what if like Merlin and Arthur just turned into different animals and then just hung out as different animals. That's the movie. That's it. At one point they turn into squirrels and a real squirrel tries to hump Arthur. That's something that happens in Sword in the Stone. It's real. And then at the very end, he pulls the sword out of the stone. Spoiler alert. And that's it. And then, and then it's like, oh, I guess you're king now. And it's like, wait, that's it? That's the end of the movie? And then like Merlin makes a joke about television and that's the end. Like it's, it's so bad. It is, it is a very, like I have not seen every animated Disney film, but it is the worst animated Disney film I've <laughs> ever seen. I'll put it that way. I, uh, I've never seen that movie, but uh, I think you have a controversial take, but I'm not sure. I really if don't If anyone know. wants to come at me telling me why sword in the stone is good, you know, have at, I think it's, <laughs> My, my wife and I were like, what is this shit? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I also watched uh, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel season three, which mm. was a delight, as okay. are the first two seasons. The direction on that show was insane. There were like – you want to talk about oneers. There were some insane oneers on that show um, where I don't know how they get the camera where they take it um, and involve like you know 200 extras and stuff. It's nuts because I was – pretty pissed when Measle won best director for a comedy in season one over there was something I was mad about um, as I am wont to do during award season. Um, but then I watched it and I was like, ah, okay. Yeah. yeah. Fair. 
Oh, I also the the the, the other film I saw this so far this year was Blue Thunder, starring starring Roy Schneider. Uh, so it's from the direct. It's, uh, I think John Badham, the director of Saturday Night Fever. Basically, uh, Roy Schneider and Daniel Stern are cops in L.A. who fly a helicopter. And like, they're like, they're the guys on the scene who are like, ah, the suspect's running this way. But then a new special militarized helicopter is brought onto the scene and it, they want to use the helicopter against like the poor (laughs) and like, not like, and so like Roy Schneider has to like uncover a conspiracy uh, involving the dangerous new helicopter. And it's, it's some B movie goodness. Like it's, it's on, I rented it and it is. It's pure B movie. There's like Malcolm McDowell is the bad guy, and he has like there's like a helicopter fight kind of at the end. It's it's weird. Um, I had fun with it. It's not the greatest <laughs> film by any stretch, um, but I I enjoyed Blue Thunder for what it was. Interesting. So all right, yeah. Anyway, but of the films that I've seen so far this year, The Invitation fucked me up, but it's also the best one I've seen. That's fair. I rewatched 10 Things I Hate About You, and that's probably the best thing I've seen this year. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you all so much for listening. Uh, next week's episode is going to be exciting because the Oscar nominations come out on Monday, and that's when we record. So we will be talking Oscar nominations. Um, it should be exciting because this is a very rushed year for the Academy. It's uh, so rushed. I forgot. Like the Oscars are like the first week of February. So like it's very fast. Yeah, it's very exciting. So uh, that'll be our next episode. So if you want to keep up with this podcast, you should follow us on Twitter. Adam, where can we find you on Twitter? At Adam Chitwood. And you can find me at Matt Goldberg. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back with you next week.